In what we're doing now, we are getting to a feel of the world that is neither organic nor mechanical. Simply, what it is. We don't know the contrast, just as we don't know the contrast voluntary involuntary, we don't know the contrast of organic All right, folks, we are back. Meditations and Molotovs. I am your host, Vincent Emanuele. This is the Progressive Radio Network, where you can find this program live every Monday at 1 p.m. Central Time. I am joined again by Sergio Corgan. We're going to jump straight into it because this is going to be the last of our three-part conversation. What I thought would take an hour, but I should have known better. So the first part of our conversation we talked about, and you should check this out at the in the archives, you can simply Google Meditations and Molotovs and you'll find the archive page. Nonetheless, the first conversation we talked about Sergio's childhood, growing up in the former Soviet Union, then Ukraine, leaving, coming to the United States, what that was like, and then our experiences in the Marine Corps and in the war uh, during our second, uh, the second part of our conversation. Today, I would like to talk to Sergio about coming home from the war joining Iraq veterans against the war, testifying to Congress, and then eventually traveling overseas, living in India for a year, uh, studying abroad in the EU, um, maintaining contact with organizations and activists who were active in the United States and also abroad. And then also, of course, over the last couple of years, Sergio has been filming a documentary in Ukraine. So without further ado, welcome back the program, Sergio. Thank you. Good to be back. All right, brother. So uh, you get home from the military. What is this like? You decide to get active. Talk to us about this, what that process was like. Well, I think just uh, as we finished our conversation, you know, uh, I think coming to a realization uh, that what happened in Iraq was um, uh, was caused by a lot of different things uh, and without any um, positive, uh, had a negative connotation to everything that happened. And so like the the desire maybe or the need to uh, find out and figure out uh, what really happened kind of took place um, um, when I got back. So reading, um, reading things, reading people like Howard Zinn, um, different Noam Chomsky and other people uh, and kind of like getting getting this view of a getting a more of an objective view of uh, what's taking in the world, how it's been pan out, uh, the reasons why uh, when we joined, uh, we didn't have a clear view of what we were joining, why we were joining and what was the outcome of our uh, participation in that. Um, so a lot of those things came together and I think just uh, the initial, initial, uh, as soon as I got out, probably initial four or five months, it was uh, trying to figuring things out, putting them into place, uh, studying and learning, uh, communicating with people. And of course, seeing the um, seeing that the people back home didn't really care of what was taking place in Iraq. And uh, for that and that, at that point, it was both uh, in terms of veteran treatment and, of course, uh, the um the casualties and uh, destruction that we created in Iraq itself. So when did you decide to join an organization? 
Uh, I joined organization. It was uh, January of 2007. Uh, uh, by that time, I moved down to Texas. Uh, so I moved down to Texas, and I lived with uh, Johnny, uh, one of the guys we served with. Um, and so that at that point, I uh, so I finished my first semester at school. And so at school, at first, I took business classes. And then when I took a business ethics class, I kind of realized that it wasn't for me because I couldn't. Um, I would always ask professor, how is it ethically? Uh, how is just business in general or economics is ethical? Uh, and, uh, and so basically, it's just a lot of contradictions there. And so I pushed away from that and uh, got into history and stuff. And so in January... Um, after seeing one of the main de uh, demonstrations or uh, actions that the uh, Iraq veterans against the war did in uh, Washington, D.C. And so that was my first exposure to um, other veterans who felt the same way like I did, but um, and they actually had an outlet. So like seeing basically seeing the same feelings and same emotions uh, boiling inside of me and then seeing the platform that there was for the veterans to speak out and bring uh, bring attention to what was taking place in Iraq and, of course, at home with the veterans and the military. Um, they kind of put everything together, and that's when, you know, uh, when we talked and I basically asked how to do uh, that. I was ready to join the organization and kind of get involved. Uh, yeah, well, I remember, um, I remember someone calling me. I can't remember who it was. It might have been Jose Vasquez, but somebody called me. And said, "Hey Vince, do you know we're holding this event? Do you know of anybody who wants to testify?" And I remember I, I called you at the time, and then we had agreed to testify at the Winter Soldier hearings, both the uh, public event and then also the Winter Soldier on the Hill when we testified to Congress. And I believe after that, I'm trying to think of the time frame here. So it's 2008. What was go? Where were you living in 2008? Uh, in 2000. So 2006, 2007, I joined Shalom called me, Shalom Keller uh, called me, and he was wild. I mean, he was really wild, so I kind of liked that. You know, I was like, all right, so these guys, you know, uh, they're on point. You know, he sounded, he was very uh, solid on his beliefs, you know, like things that the organization was doing, so that also boosted up. So by then, in 2007, <clears throat> so by 2008, I moved to Oregon, to University of Oregon, uh, and I was going there, and so like that's that's when I um, I was active with like uh, climate stuff, uh, environmental stuff in Texas, because um, I lived in the dry county, so it was a little bit uh, it was hard to find people, uh, probably veterans or anybody else who would speak out against stuff. But once I got to Oregon and I uh, I linked up with Gordon Sturrock, uh, he was with VFP. Uh, their chapter got closed down because they were uh, bringing attention to the uh, crimes of Israel and Palestine. And so the VFP didn't really uh, agree with them. And nonetheless, so this, I mean, this is the time where I actually got into local organizing. We were uh, going to universities, doing speaking events. We we're organizing, trying to organize veterans around the campus, uh, different, di doing different events. And that's when you called me in that s s February, maybe March. Yeah. It was like a month, maybe a few weeks before that thing. Um, and so that's, yeah. So what, did, what were you up to? After the Winter Soldier hearings in 08, 09, 2010. Okay, so 
after the Winter Soldier hearing, like I got back to Oregon, um, and we we just kept doing uh, different. Uh, we were doing different events in Washington, Seattle, uh, doing more testimonies, uh, and just basically trying to uh, start an IBAW chapter in Oregon, Eugene. Um, I forgot the guy's name, but um, and then it came to the election time. I think um, RNC basically RNC was the um, was the last political thing uh, I was involved uh, before the election of Obama, and that's when we were in Minneapolis. And so, um, yeah, and it was really disappointing, and I think it was also one of the reasons why I uh, I kind of went to India because I felt like um, people kind of gave up. Or they, well, they not gave up. They, they saw uh, sort of a false hope, and um, it was just all the attention was directed towards it, and that was uh, very disappointing for myself, myself in general. And so that was uh, that kind of pushed me to go to India. Uh, yeah, and so for people who don't know out there, Iraq Veterans Against the War held. And I give the organization actually a lot of credit for this because I think that they had really good politics. I mean, way ahead of the curve in terms of uh, protesting, understanding what Obama stood for, understanding the limitations of Obama and the Democrats, and knowing that the wars were and the empire and the militarism would increase and continue. And so for that, I give IBAW a lot of credit and the people who were involved back then because – you know, I remember us being in Denver, Colorado before we got to Minneapolis, Minnesota, and we had 10, 15,000 people, huge concert, you know, Rage Against the Machine playing, members from MC5, uh, members from the Flowbots, all these great bands and all these great things happening. It was the first time I got to meet Ron Kovic or Kovics uh, and marched with him in the march. And so IVAW led that march and, and led 10, 15,000 people to the well, as close as you could get to the Pepsi Center during Bill Clinton's speech. And this was a great, I think, symbolic moment. It's kind of a shame people forget now, but even then, it was no less than uh, nine years ago. But even nine years ago, really, people didn't have handheld cameras with them all the time. So we didn't really get to document as much of this stuff as I think we could have and should have. Nonetheless, it was a great moment. It was one of the few moments I, since I've been involved when I think we should have escalated the situation, you know, having 10, 15,000 people behind us all pumped up after Rage Against the Machine played a, a, a set. And then, you know, 100 veterans marching up to the police line with the police pointing weapons and tear gas canisters and so on pointed at us. And yeah, it was one of those moments when I think we should have. Uh, and it's a shame that we don't have the energy now with the kind of media and so on that's out there. But anyway, so just to give folks a little bit of history. And then we, of course, went to Minneapolis and uh, protested the RNC, where we were actually treated much better, which is also a story that will remain with me for a long time or a nice lesson. You know, I've been attacked by uh, liberals and Democrats far worse than I've ever been attacked by any Republican or conservative or libertarian. In fact, I get a lot of really nice mail from libertarians who are happy that someone on the left takes them seriously. In any case, what I think is interesting about the trip to Minneapolis was, again, the fact that IVAW and, and us activists were treated much nicer by the Republicans, the delegates and the police and the people in charge than we were in Denver, where we were treated very, very hostile. I mean, people people thought we were absolutely insane and that the next coming of Christ was here. And it was, you know, I'll never forget those moments. Anyway, we, we th- I just want to clue people in because I don't think you weren't in Denver. No, no. So, yeah, so I just want to let people know about that. 
part of history that might be lost. And I know it's documented in books and so on, but in any case, so it's Obama gets elected, the liberals and the Democrats around the country, the identitarians and all of these people are excited as hell, uh, including, you know, in a genuine way, of course, many, many black people throughout the United States. Um, we, on the other hand, are not happy. You decide to go to India. What is that experience like? What brought you to India? How did you go? To some people, that sounds crazy. You just get up and go to India. What is, what is that like? What, what, how do you do such a thing? Uh, well, I think it was um, due to not having um, maybe a clear understanding of how to cope with certain uh, emotions, you know, especially after being in combat and war. Um, and dealing with that. And so I think after when I, you know, I was a little bit um, pissed off, you can say, after RNC because we didn't do really any actions that we were supposed to do. Um, and, I mean, I guess there there were different reasons for that. But, yeah, and I was on the way back with a few people uh, heading back to Oregon in the car. Um, and I felt, I just, um, I felt that I wasn't, I had to find myself, I guess. Uh, I don't know whether it's due to the Hollywoodization by, you know, people going to India or Tibet trying to find themselves. That might have been also one of the reasons living in this society. You know, it's hard to it's really hard to uh, tell what's intrinsic and what actually external and pushing you. So nonetheless, I think I also wanted to. Yeah, I mean, I think inside of my mind, I was pretty lost, you know, like I knew what I stood for. And I knew that militarism and military industrial complex, the wars had to stop. Like the, there, there has to be something, um, uh, something happening for people of Iraq and Afghanistan and all those things. And so um, and so I went, uh, I traveled first, I just wanted to see the country. So I traveled for about two and a half months. I went to the north to the Himalayas, I really wanted to see the mountains, um, just met a lot of people on the way. Um, and then I eventually met this yoga instructor from Germany, who, uh, who was donating money to a little, uh, it's kind of like a school slash shelter. Um, so there were it was a school for kids that didn't have money to go to regular schools. Our parents were working uh, all the time, so they couldn't um, they couldn't take them to school or couldn't afford taking them to school. And kids who were basically sold to either slavery or uh, sex slavery in the streets of uh, Mumbai and all that stuff. Uh, and so I went, and when he told me about that, and he said that they don't have money to pay me, and I told him that I don't really need money as long as they give me a place to sleep and food to eat. So I thought, because I didn't... After two months traveling, I felt uh, very useless, and the the exposure to poverty that takes place in India was really uh, was really shocking, and it was hard for me, even though I didn't have much money. Like it was hard for me to uh, be a tourist in the country. That's you know that's uh, it's not it's not a poor country. Let's put it this way, but in the country where a majority of people are oppressed through uh, caste system, through economic systems, through this racism, whatever, gender, you know, all kinds of stuff. Um, and so and so I went to that school. I was there for about two and a half months. And then my nephew OD'd. Uh, and so I flew back to bury him. And then I went back again for about a month and a half, two months. And then there was a little incident. Um, and I, I basically left uh, because I couldn't um, 
the the people who were in charge they came from an upper caste and so they perceived when i wanted to build uh little beds for kids so they wouldn't get um uh, bites from bugs she uh the person kind of looked at me in the face and she laughed and she said well when they're down here at school they're going to go back and sleep on the floor so that we don't want we don't want them to be comfortable and so that kind of that kind of shocked me uh it hit me pretty hard and then uh the lady who was there from scotland uh she basically broke it down to me and she said there are two there are two things when you do this so you'll find a school that doesn't have money but treats children really well and then you'll find schools that have money and they, they don't treat children really well. And it's hard to find that in between, you know. Um, and so that kind of um, so that kind of explained to me. And I realized at that moment also that in order. So I guess coming back home and then reflecting, talking to people, uh, reflecting on it, it came to a realization that in order to for me to possibly help uh improve the conditions over over overseas like we have to change the systems in the west because these are the main systems of oppression throughout colonialism and just history of empires and um and and now of course market domination and uh so all those things and and that's and so in 2009 april of 2009 i came here because uh, uh there was uh, you guys got me a job working at the parks department in Chesterton. And so that was primary reason for me to move to Burns Harbor. And you, your roommate moved out as well. Yeah. I think it's Joe. Yeah. 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 And so you didn't have a roommate and crazy. you found a job. Like, and I ask you if you can find me like a part-time gig so I can survive. I'm trying to think. Yeah. And then your pops got, uh, so it was 09. Yeah. yeah. So it was okay. 09. And so that's why, um, I came here to Burns Harbor. And then you started going to school. Yeah, and that I just had to finish up school. I had two years left. Right. And we were doing some of the labor stuff in Wisconsin, uh, different events and uh, mm-hmm. veterans. Uh, we did a lot of uh, DAV stuff, disabled American veteran stuff, helping mm-hmm. out veterans with uh, um, the veterans medis- club on yeah, campus. Medical veterans club on campus. So mm-hmm. all those things were going on. And then you leave here. We'll talk about those experiences. We'll kind of come back around and talk, just generally talk about activism in general. But um, you leave here. What year did you leave here then again? 2011. 11. And you moved to Florida. No, I, I went to uh, Texas. We're doing Operation Recovery thing. So uh, I volunteered right. to be one of the organizers. Yeah, so talk to us about, the, talk to us about those experiences. Yeah, so, uh, so Aaron... And a few people were uh, basically had a campaign going on, Operation Recovery. So the idea behind the campaign was to stop the deployment of traumatized troops. And that included everything, not just uh, being in combat, but it also included uh, military sexual trauma, uh, especially directed at women because um, it's, you know, with men, it's a little bit different. Not a lot of cases are being filed due to the fact that it's a man on man violence, uh, sexual violence. So it's kind of stigmatic in our society to uh, make you makes you uh, um, takes the machoism out of you, you know. Um, and so like all these things. And so we were at Fort Hood, especially after the incident that happened on that base with the that major whoever who killed a few people on that base, you know, and so we went there trying to organize. So I mean, the operation, it was really good because it brought, uh, we did bring a lot of attention to military sexual trauma, which uh, is very uh, rarely uh, were talked about. 
And so, I mean, of course, there are different divisions inside, but uh, we were basically going to the bases and we were trying to organize active duty uh, military who personnel. Is, uh, who is inviting you on the base? Nobody was inviting us on the base. So it was kind of, uh, we had uh, one of the person who was still, he was in the process of separating from the military. So he still had a sticker on his car that we can go on base and he had an ID. And so he would always, he would drive us there. And he would just get us on base and we would uh, walk around the base, try to organize, you know, hiding from the generals, officers, uh, <laughs> uh, doing different actions, which was really good. Cause I mean, the idea for me at least, and, um, person who I was uh, doing a lot of work with, uh, our idea was not just stop. I mean, we, we were thinking of m- more like organizing and creating this anti-war movement. Mm-hmm. And so, which but was, which was really had fallen apart at that yeah. point because a lot of anti-war people were really just Obama supporters and liberals and Democrats. Exactly. And so it was, uh, you know, and so and there was a little bit counterweight, like different dynamics, power dynamics taking place as well. But nonetheless, uh, they definitely I mean, the general was having uh, different uh, formations and different um, events. And they would always say, like, hey, if somebody comes up to you, if they're like people coming up to you, talking to you about Operation Recovery, ignore them, don't sign anything. Sure. And, and so it was interesting because uh, one of the guys, Chris, uh, from South Carolina or North Carolina, uh, he, um, we were walking around and I came up to him. I think it was me and Aaron. And uh, we talked to him. He's like, hey, man, he's like, what's going on? You know, we're with Operation Recovery. You know, we told him. And he was like, no, I can't talk to you. And so he turned away and kept walking, you know. And we just stood there. And then he turned around and he came up to us. He was like, you know what? He's like, actually, no, I'm interested, you know. And so he talked and then, you know. And so it was uh, it was a really good experience in terms of, getting down on the ground and basically um, just organizing the basic principles of organizing, canvassing, you know, talking to people, finding out what issues they're facing, you know, doing surveys, um, doing different actions, uh, getting different communities from Austin, you know, doing uh, different actions, getting speakers in, uh, creating, uh, basically creating a community center that provided uh, legal help, um, medical help, psychological help, uh, even like arrest, you know, just to go and uh, get away from the base. Uh, we did um, we did different workshops, uh, you know, periods of instruction um, on different issues. So helping, basically helping GIs to understand or helping military personnel to understand their uh, rights. And um, yeah, and it was really intense. I mean, we was... I mean, there were some cases when uh, we would come up to a house and this uh, knock on their door because they gave us their contact. And then we would leave and the person or as soon as the person would see us coming up, they would run out and like very aggressively. And we would ask them like, hey, you know what's going on? And basically they were afraid that the military was coming to throw him in jail. So this guy, his uh, his wife, uh, his kid died and they didn't want to let him uh, go back home for the funeral. And so because and then something happened either way, they were harassing him from the uh, from the higher ups. Um, And and to be honest with you, another really um, what was really helpful is uh, dealing and working with um, military sexual trauma victims. And that's basically. Being learning how our uh, body language and certain uh, certain 
certain behaviors that we never paid attention to can uh, can be interpreted in, in many different uh, ways. And so, like, if a person uh, comes from a certain background with certain trauma, uh, different, you know, different, uh, different behaviors that we usually don't pay attention to, and they might not be as uh, have such a huge impact on somebody else might have a big impact on others. And so um, that was also interesting, both learning this and just both learning of the power dynamics and how different things, whether it's in the military and or in society. So like the military, I always perceived, I always looked at it as this microcosm of our society, you know, um, and all those things are within within that microcosm uh micro uh place those things are um they're more um it's easier to see them they they kind of they present themselves in the more open way so like different different things that we experience in society so like one in three women for example during their lifetime experience some form of violence uh and you know and then you go in the military and it's it's more intense there, and and you know, and it's just like in society, it's mostly comes from the people who you know who are around you. So like people are higher ups, people who know who understand their power dynamics, you know, and it's all this power, 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 you know, like this this balance or imbalance between powers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a really great experience, and it was also I think it was also um, good experience to see the dynamics between the national level of how they perceive things and how the organizers on the ground perceive things. And, and this gap, sometimes that gap between uh, these entities that creates this conflict, which is, as always, conflict is good if, if you have means to resolve the conflict. So conflict resolution now. And, and I think organizations do, you know, do usually think of these ways, like, well, if there's a conflict, how, how are we going to resolve, you know, different things? And so that was also interesting to see these dynamics and understanding that there are more different elements that come into play, especially when you're at national level and you have to uh, do the fundraising, you get the money. And so like you do, and sometimes like people, people intrinsically, I think have very good intentions, positive intentions. But I think once you get in that spin of those uh, dynamics and what you have to show for, for example, for the grant money that you get can sometimes be completely different from what, the organizers or activists on the ground see would be more useful. Mm-hmm. And then it comes that tension and sometimes, and those projects just kind of fall, fall off, you know, fall off the thing. So, mm-hmm. so you leave Texas. What year is it now? It was, it was still 2011. I was there for three months or four months. Okay. So you leave Texas and you're coming home. Yeah, well, we went to Oregon for the national convention. Uh, a national convention when uh, where um, there was also um, you know I, that was actually a very interesting convention because that's where the the idea of bringing Afghanistan into organization whether changing the name or incorporating in some ways so we actually bring attention to the illegal also illegal occupation uh, that is very um, is rarely talked about up to uh, even up to this day you know mm-hmm. and if it's talked about it's only about this troop surge like withdrawing troops or not 
And so, and it was also, and I think at that point, point, uh, we, I mean, we saw the divisions in between, you know, there are certain people thought that Afghanistan war was a right war and then Iraq war, it was illegal occupation and stuff like that. So those dynamics were there before. But this, uh, I think at that convention, for myself, at least personal, that's where I really saw that serious uh, tension within the organization and that, you know, there had to be something done. And so, um, yeah, and I mean, this is a good lesson for people who are getting involved. I mean, I would suggest that, you know, I think one of the failures in, in, on our behalf was that we didn't uh, we didn't engage in proper political education. And I think if we had a more popular education program uh, that was really structured and geared towards teaching people the history of U.S. empire and teaching people the history of U.S. foreign policy and what to expect and what not to expect from military invasions and classes on international law. I mean, I think all of those things could have been very useful and it would have avoided those kinds of tensions. Um, you get more people on the same path. And then, you know, once you have enough people in your organization or your coalition educated and they can agree upon um, whether it's one issue such as the war in Afghanistan or whether it's the underlying values, say international solidarity or respect for uh, international law or say from a moral or an ethical standpoint that you're opposed to the war. I mean the more that you teach people those things and the more your group gets on the same page, the more you can avoid uh, future problems. So when issues like this do come up, you know, I mean, Syria is also a good example of this. I mean, Syria, you have two, uh, what I think, really hard line and silly lines from people. So on the one hand, you have people who are apologists for Assad, and they don't think that Russian bombs kill innocent people. And I think that's, you know, they sort of want to cheerlead for Hezbollah and the Iranian forces and so on. And I think that's silly. But I also think the group that thinks that there's some revolutionary force that's ready to take over and uh, somehow preside over a civil society in Syria is equally silly. So, again, I think what lacks here is a serious popular education and political education from people uh, on the left or progressive organizations, whatever you want to call them. And so then, therefore, people fall into these sort of sectarian camps. And, you know, neither camp, of course, is going to get what they want at all. But and so anyway, to get back to your story, you're seeing these things, you see what happens. When do you decide to then go overseas to what's the gap here? We're talking 2011, 2012. So 20 were you in Chicago for the NATO protests? No, I wasn't able to come for that. I was in Florida by then. OK. Um, so I had a uh, yeah I was just trying to put things together. Uh, at that point, I, I was looking for um, alternatives to um, anti-war movement, especially since it didn't exist. And so, like I thought, maybe <clears throat> by continuing education, so going to master's degree, maybe I can find a better outlet in the academia mm -hmm. uh, to do activism, and of course to uh, obtain more knowledge. But you know, certain knowledge, because I think I think the most uh, the most important education is uh, self-education um, or desire to educate yourself or will I want to uh, educate yourself. And so I was in Florida and then, yeah, I applied to the Institute in The Hague um, for agricultural, basically political economy uh, institute. And um, yeah, and I had there 
Well, before that, I went to uh, I went to Ukraine to visit my relatives uh, for about a month and a half because I haven't seen them since. Oh, well, what year was that? Two thousand four. Uh, that was in two thousand twelve. Okay. Um, so you get to you get to Den Haag. Twenty thirteen. My bad. It was what, 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 what do you think of Den Haag and and the what's the what was the name of the school again? Uh, it's uh, International Institute of Social uh, Institute of Social Studies in the Hague. Okay. Um, with the uh, Rotterdam University, and the Hague is where for those who are uh, geographically it's, challenged. Uh, <laughs> it's uh, south of Amsterdam. Okay, a little bit uh, southeast of Amsterdam. Um, it's the the political, you know, it's the court, the International Criminal Court. Uh, so it's uh, it's a very bureaucratic city. So that's where all the embassies, all the consults, and all that stuff. Uh, what do I think? Wow. Well, it was. Um, well, the first thing it was really actually interesting because <laughs> uh, some of the people, because before the classes started, some of the people thought that I was uh, that I was a janitor at the university uh, because I had long hair. I mean, I was I was w- lifting weights at that time too. I had tattoos, you know, and <laughs> I had this uh, had this uh, Italian guy Andre approach me, you know, and he was like, "Hey, what's going on?" And he told me he's like, "Yeah, we were talking, standing there." talking like oh who's this guy he probably works here you know he's a janitor so i guess i i'm not a really uh academia type physiologically (laughs) or whatever that might be you know or maybe how i present myself um but either way well the interesting the really interesting thing was well first off um it's an international institute so it was uh it was on development studies so basically to uh, 98 to 99 percent of all students were from the uh, uh, from the South, as you might call it, South America, Central America, Africa, Asia, you know, um, all those places. So the idea is that they go there and they learn um, different uh, ways of developing their country. So well, first off, going to Europe and learning about developing country to the standards of European standards or American standards it's already kind of funny. Um, but, you know, I didn't see it that way. So the interesting thing was is that majority of students came, uh, came from NGO backgrounds and political backgrounds, so political positions. Um, so a lot of, for example, like we had a class of 30 or 40 Indonesian students and they were all scholarships from political, you know, they were all from uh, government. Um, so, you know, learning the uh, Western uh, ways of um, conducting business, bureaucratic business, which is good. I mean, don't get me wrong. I think Western, I think, of course, minus the colonialism, minus the exploitation and wars and all that stuff, the systems, the, the, the institutions themselves are pretty solid. I mean, solid in the way that people have ability to uh, pressure them in one way or, or the other way. So that's good, unlike maybe in some countries where you might not be able to. Mm-hmm. Uh, nonetheless, but so a lot of, uh, so what I saw is basically middle class, upper class. Um, and it was really, man, I don't even know how to, um, the dynamics were really interesting. So like a lot of, uh, from different continents, there were different dynamics, you know, like, um, so for example, from Africa, um, a lot of people were very Christian, you know, it's nothing wrong, of course, but, uh, they had this, you know, well, uh, how did that happen? Yeah. I wonder, <laughs> huh? um, uh. Christian, very, but rad, like, uh, I would say very, um, 
maybe like evangelical or you know like very sure. intense oh, sure. like very intense so we had gender you know i was part of all kinds of different committees gender committee environmental committee social committee you know i i, I wanted to participate I, I mean my primary one of the primary things when i realized uh that you know this institution is like any other institution um i realized that this is the time really not to make a career or to you know uh, it was more about meeting people and making good friendships and connections um, and eventually tying all these things together one day, you know, eventually. I mean, we live in a globalized world, so I think eventually things are going to have to be perceived from a more of a objective, uh, especially with environment and resources and all those things. And so it was interesting to see the, all these different dynamics uh, within the groups, between the groups. Uh the, you know, just the basic social things, like, for example, uh, some African student wouldn't like the fact that one of the African girls would go out with the guy from Nicaragua mm. because he was, you know, mm-hmm. it's like, well, what are you doing? You know, like, right, you right, know, we right. should stick together. So like the Indonesian, also the same thing. So like all these groups were very. You know, it was integration, like we were integrated, we were friends, you know, we we're hanging out, but there was this still this, you know, kind of like stick with your own, you know, mm-hmm. just in case. But based on racial and ethnic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Religious, ethnic, you know, racial um, right. categories. Um, and yeah, and so, okay, so something we talked about, uh, it was, so for me, what was interesting to see is that, um so a lot of people from this institute, there's a lot of connections with uh, World Bank and all these different WTO, uh, UN, uh, all these organizations, major world organization, international organization. And so the interesting for me was to see is that these NGOs, how these like all these smart and bright and like these driven people, you know, who like want to get things done and want to change things. We're all spreading into NGOs or like political institutions, you know, like going into the government. So like there were a few people who were just kind of from the ground, like organizers, you know, most of them were with NGOs and a lot of those NGOs were Western NGOs. Mm -hmm. And so for me, myself, like um, I just saw a big contradiction of everything. So the idea of development and then development is based on the Western type of development. Mm-hmm. And then what it took for the West to develop and then bringing those ideas into your country, for example, in the South or whatever, whatever you're going back mm-hmm. and then trying to incorporate those things into like this uh, social buff through NGOs, you know, mm-hmm. um, not through grassroots organizing. Maybe some people are. And I don't know, maybe some people shift, but it's mostly through NGOs. And so for me, it was interesting when we talked about it, that a lot of these motivated great people go into NGOs, you know, because it's it's this survival, of course, the salaries, you know, we understand that. But it's a career thing, you know, it's kind of like it's it's just all these different elements come together. And it was instead of having these people on the ground and actually not because, come on, we know. We know about NGOs, what they, I mean, their intentions, especially, I think there are a lot of good NGOs. They get a lot of things done, but it's not, they're just trying to put a bandaid on a bigger wound that has to be, you know, uh, fixed, you know, and, yeah. um, 
And that no, depends. revolutionary movements didn't have fucking NGOs. I mean, exactly. it's just really that simple. <laughs> yeah, they relied on local populations. I don't populations. know what the fuck people think is going to happen. Like, like 350.org is going to start a fucking revolution or like these people are going to support it. I mean, they're not going to. That's my thinking. I don't know. This is what worries me about these groups. You see it now. So we're seeing it now. I mean, we could bring us up to speed because not that Sergio hasn't done any. Well, fuck, we didn't even talk about Ukraine. We could talk again about Ukraine on a different time. But since we're talking about um, activism, yeah. So one of the issues I see now is during the Bush era, as we mentioned earlier, there were NGOs like MoveOn.org and then these other groups. It's kind of funny. The two groups who were putting on the big actions back during the Bush era that people remember, the big marches and, and street theater and so on. I guess you could add the third would be Code Pink at some point. But mainly the Revolutionary Communist Party. Uh, I have no idea where these people get all their money from. And then the MoveOn.org folks. So you had this like really establishment liberal types, Democrats, and then you had the Revolutionary Communist Party who's totally sectarian and has virtually no power anywhere. So this was interesting. And so I'm, it's interesting because I see some of the same things today. I think there's less energy behind these sectarian movements like the PSL or the Freedom Road Socialists or the Independent Socialists or the International Socialists or the Socialist Alternative or whatever the hell. Uh, there's less energy behind those. But what I am seeing in – I think you've seen this as well – is this influx of uh, top-heavy, centralized, uh, top-down, very hierarchical uh, NGOs such as Indivisible and these other groups like Resist and so on. And I just don't trust the – that. so, OK, it's not that we – of course we don't trust these organizations. We don't – you know, uh, I'm not going to trust a bunch of former congressional staffers to uh, lead the so-called resistance movement. My concern with this is twofold. One, that people aren't going to learn the basic skills of organizing and how to develop independent institutions. And then two, that once the Republicans or if the Republicans get elected out of office, and I don't think that's 2018, that's maybe 2020, maybe not. um, If or when that happens, these groups are going to go away and they're going to take their infrastructure and their resources and their personnel with them. Now, people will be left with skills some basic skills like how to call your congressman, which seems to be the new fad today is just send letters in Congress and, you know, people talking about postcard parties and all. I mean, it's it's almost too much really for my head to take sometimes. But I have to you have to be patient with folks on some level. But then you also have to challenge folks. You know, last night I was watching uh, Spike Lee's film, Malcolm X, and one of the things that I'm struck by both in that film and what I've read about Malcolm X and, and different movements as well, but then also I was thinking about the film Selma as well, is people think of these characters like Malcolm X or Martin Luther King and they think of these like very polite gentlemen and so on. But, you know, these people didn't kiss ass. They didn't go to communities and be like, oh, gosh, you're so oppressed and Uh, You know, I'm sure you don't have that much time because you have a job and you're really oppressed and, you know, just give us what you can. No. (laughs) I mean, what the fuck? These people were like, get off your ass. Malcolm X, I'm watching that and I can see where he's coming from. As we've talked about in the past, you know, drugs and alcohol really being a hindrance on a lot of the organizing and stuff that we've done. People falling off because they can't remain disciplined enough to have a healthy enough lifestyle to continue doing what we need to be doing. 
So I can see why people go to religious ideologies and structures in the organizing world, because at least then you instill the discipline to say, hey, you know, and that's what I see from King and X and people like that. You know, they're going to these communities and they're saying, you need to get off your ass. You need to get with it. You need to snap out of the white man's mentality. You need to snap out of being oppressed. You need to snap out of being brainwashed and get with the fucking program. In not so many words, that is what Malcolm X says throughout Alex Haley's biography um, and had a lot of people motivated and mobilized. Now, we know the limitations. We know that there was misogyny and so on. And so there's there's nuance here, and that's important for people to recognize as well. We're not try- I'm not trying to glorify any of these individuals, but what I am looking at are individuals and groups and movements and organizations and parties that have had influence – in a revolutionary way. And I think that that's something that maybe because it's so cliche, you know, so I became very upset when the Bernie Sanders revolution was called a revolution. Cause I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like this is what people are now going to think a revolution is, is donating $27 a month and knocking on fucking doors. That's not a revolution. However, I was interested because that terminology got thrown around again. But, you know, I've never ran around being like, hey, brother revolutionary, I'm a revolution. I mean, it just seems it seems so 1960s <laughs> and it seems so detached from the kind of reality. I mean, we're going to meetings and, and we have people that barely know how to hold a meeting. And that's not a knock on them. That's just a sign of the times. And that's a, that's a real that's a real world assessment of where we're at. There's a lot of people who simply have a hard time holding effective meetings. So to jump from that to saying, oh, yeah, let's bring on the revolution. I'm sorry, but no one is prepared for that in the least bit. But however, that being said, what I think needs to be sifted through over the coming years here, and speaking of some of the activism you mentioned as well, is sort of two things. One and many more, but these are the two things that are on my mind. Number one, who's interested in what exactly how do we bring more people to that side, people who want to radically change society? And then how do we give people the practical, real-world uh, organizing skills to then put those ideas into action? So anyway, that's my little rant. I'm probably talking too much. People are tuning in to hear Sergio. So uh, I'll, I'll just pass it over <laughs> if you have anything to say about any of that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... Or if uh, not, I mean, just what are your reflections from what you've been seeing since Trump's been elected? I mean, you've been going to a lot of events yourself. Yeah, I mean, I well, um, I'm not a pessimist. I'm sometimes more of a realist trying to be a realist, I guess, in the surreal world that we live in. But, um, well, for me, it was... I wasn't really surprised. I mean, I, I, was, I was not happy. I was really uh, uh, unhappy, but... So the, the the a lot of people coming into the street like I I'm a little bit um I kind of perceive this more of a spectacle um uh, because as you know it's easier to get people into uh streets to just go walk around you know feel good meet some people um uh, you know and then go home and that's it so like the the so that was I I didn't really like about that because the I mean it, not even that people went out into the streets but be, when they went out into the streets, they didn't really have a clear message one why they were going out into the street, what they stand for, and like what they're gonna do with it. Uh, but nonetheless, the I think the the wave like people coming out, finally coming out of the shells, is a great thing. And I think this is like a momentum. As I guess it's something that you said about the DNC uh, in two thousand eight, and I think the same thing that we saw in uh, Standing Rock as well. 
there was this momentum. But we messed up, you know. Us, mm-hmm. we messed up. Others messed up. We didn't. We didn't work it. Like we didn't grab it, and we didn't utilize it. And so, like right now, is that time to grab on that momentum? Slow down. Like take it easy. Like seriously, figure out like what we stand for, what we're trying to achieve, um, where are we going, and understanding that this is a long-term uh, process. And like this, and shifting away from electoral politics and more onto social uh, organizing, so uh, uh, grassroots. Because if no matter if we have the power, if if people on the ground, the base, the the just us citizen, regular citizen, hold the power in our hands to guide the political system or, or the political process in any direction it shouldn't matter who's in the office whether it's republican whether it's independent whether it's green whether it's a democrat and so the idea i'm afraid what i'm seeing also a lot is this these organizations concentrating on electoral politics and it's come on we've seen the politics i mean we've seen what the politics done you know Democrats, Republicans, it don't matter. Like it's, you know, it's, it's about interest. It's about private interest. It's about certain interests that uh, have a higher place. And so I think if people just kind of take their time, educate themselves, uh, do different workshops, uh, trying to inform themselves and take their time and actually trying to organize the base, their communities, instead of concentrating on who we're going to uh, push into office. That's important. Of course, that's important. But they can come after you already have a base of people organized and you know that you're on the same page or at least you have some kind of common interest for the for the whole uh, as a whole. And, and then trying and then trying to push somebody in political. And so like and this is what I'm seeing. I'm just seeing a lot of people, a lot of organizations concentrating on this electoral because it's it's it is easier. It is oh, easier. Yeah, of course it's, it's easier. As you said, you know, call call your senator, go vote once, yeah. twice a year, Knock local doors, elections. Hold a couple fun. Yeah, go to like a, a city meeting, city council meeting, say something yeah. like, and then vote for him or not. But it's harder to create relationships, you know, and we always talk about it. We've been talking about it for a long time. Like a lot of, you know, like after doing uh, activist work, like, no, like I want to work with people who... Um, I communicate with, like, I kind of know, you know, like been to, you know, met, you know, we're just communicating like this. And something we talked about yesterday as well, what I saw through this meeting is that we're kind of people climbing out of their shells and they're slowly starting to learn how to communicate with each other. Yeah. It's like, we're, we're trying to break the schism, you know, like, uh, <laughs> we're trying to. No, there's so socially, I mean, socially. There's big problems in this country. There's big, big, big problems. I mean, people people really don't know how to socialize with strangers, let alone socialize with strangers about the most important issues of the day, especially in a society where, you know, people are told when they're 21 years old, oh, you know, you don't drink and you don't go out in public and talk about religion and politics. You don't drink and talk about religion and politics. I mean, it's just, just these Silly, silly, non-political, apolitical, cultural things that we've been taught. And then we live in this super alienated society today where people spend a uh, disproportionate amount of time in front of a screen, whether that screen be an iPad, an iPhone, a 
laptop, whatever. And so for them to get into a room and then to tell someone, no, uh, John or Jane, I don't agree with you. And this is why without either freaking out, becoming overly emotional or what, I mean, this isn't, this isn't, uh, this isn't really out of the ordinary. I mean, I'm seeing a real people having a really hard time just simply communicating with people and expressing themselves in public. The ability to stand up and say, hello, my name is Lindsay or John or whatever, and this is what I believe about this issue and this is why, and I've actually put some thought into this. See, that's the other thing that people are going to need to do here because what I'm also seeing is a lot of people who are like, well, I just want to make my community better. Well, that's great. The intentions are good, but then again, you know, those intentions have to be uh, more sophisticated, more refined. So what do you mean by making your community better? Conservatives also believe they want to make their communities better. Um, there's this belief I see with liberals that all of these conservatives are these evil people and all of this other shit. And I, I don't buy into that at all. And I think that that's where, you know, some popular education is going to come into play. Uh, and I also hear a lot about like changing attitudes and minds and all of this instead of organizing and building power. I hear very few people using the term power. And that's something that's that uh, is sort of a trend that I've noticed over the last 11 years as well. Some of the few groups, unfortunately, who do talk about power are sort of the sectarian groups. So that's a problem. Nonetheless, the more we can get people to talk about taking power, building power, exerting power, the more I think we can get people on on a similar page. Because, yeah, I, I've heard Several people say, well, we just need to change people's attitudes. Well, we need organizations to actually build power and to plug people in to do what people want to do. I mean, if we had more capacity, I would say that we could be running on several different fronts. I mean, we could be running on cultural fronts with huge cultural projects. We could be running on the electoral front and running candidates in a new party. We could be simultaneously uh, agitating within the Democratic Party. We could have uh, reformist movements, say non-electoral activists uh, working with the NGO sector, civil disobedience and so on, or fighting through the courts and, and, and all of that. While all of those groups, or at least portions of those groups, at least lend some kind of support to a truly revolutionary movement. I mean, that's the kind of all-encompassing holistic view that we should start taking when we're thinking about organizing. And I see very, very few people, and I actually don't expect the people who are just getting involved to do that. I, what I am really disappointed in are the people on the left who over the years have neglected to talk about these things um, because they are uncomfortable things to talk about. And it's a lot easier to talk about how the world's fucked up. So for every 1,000 articles I see out there that are describing the world, I see about one uh, per 1,000 that are suggesting alternatives or how people can operate in, in, in this world to create a better world or what alternative visions for a future world would look like. And that's more of what we should be focusing on in my thinking um, and what I see seriously lacking here, uh, not only with people who are just getting involved and who I actually cut a lot of slack to and I'm really glad to see them out, and more for the people who have been around and have been unable or unwilling uh, or incapable of, you know, creating these kinds of alternatives. So anyway, that's where my mind is at. We've got about five minutes left. What, what do you suggest sort of moving forward or kind of tell people what, yeah, what, what do you think, um, 
I don't know. What would be the, a good way to end? Actually, tell us a little bit because this is, this is actually really interesting and we could promote some of Sam Love's work as well. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing with Sam Love. I think that people would be interested to hear about this. Cool. Uh, Sam Love's got a, basically a poetry um, project going on in Gary. Um, so the idea is basically re um, – well, how would I how would I even – because I don't want to, you know. Um, it's – it's bringing back the arts, like it's it's creating uh, creating that culture that um, shifts away from these um, dominant, um, not rhetorics. Um, what's that word? Uh, dominant uh, stories, dominant stories, and so because um, the city of Gary, uh, I think what he mentions a lot is that people around the country or in the localities that when they hear of Gary, they always have this negative connotation to the city. Um, and, you know, and of course, for we know the reasons why uh, the city fell apart due to um, neoliberal policies, uh, moving jobs away. And of course, that usually affects uh, large parts of minority groups and stuff like that. And so his um, and so he, he, he got he basically uh, won a grant to uh, go to different institutions, so going to schools, uh, going to uh, different events and creating workshops, uh, poetry workshops that help people to, you know, find a place where they can align uh, with people, where they can learn as well. So, you know, he, 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 you can probably say he's a historian. And so he uses a lot of history in his um, uh, conversations and his workshops. And so that helps to build. And so like, for example, uh, I'm doing a little short with him or maybe I'm not going to be short, but uh, you know, kids, 13 to 15 year old kids, you know, are extremely excited in the poetry shop uh, because it gives them ability to uh, express themselves and it also, you know, and he also educates them on, uh, he empowers them. He he shows them the beauty of the city uh, where they live. Uh, he shows them that, um, you know, you have to go for something. But he also, I think, one of the most important things that he always uh, reiterates is that yes. it's work. It's job. Everything takes work, a lot of labor, and that. That's I think that's very important that nothing is easy and you just have to strive and work for it. Yes. And so those are working class ethics as well. They are not just the one percent that I hear sometimes from uh, some people on the left. Oh, you can't talk about discipline and hard work. No, in the right context and for the right purposes, people need to get discipline and they need to work hard. That's what this will take. So. Yeah, you can treat political organizing like a hobby or you can treat it like the most serious thing that you can participate in in the world because I, in my thinking that is what it is. So whether we eat, whether we have uh, clean water, whether we have water, uh, air to breathe and so on, all depends on whether or not people can be in an effective way. So, all right, folks, that was Sergio Corgan. We'll talk to you next week. This is Meditations and Molotovs. I'm your host, Vince Emanuele, and you've been listening to the Progressive Radio Network. Oh,